Chapter 19 of The Egregious English by T. W. H. Crossland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 Recreation. To amuse oneself is the great art of life. From the English point of view, the finest kind of amusement is to be obtained by killing something fox hunting deer stalking grouse shooting pheasant shooting pigeon shooting and even rabbit shooting still stand for a great deal among the best class of englishmen of old the masses had their bull baitings dog fights and cock fights these however are no longer regarded as legitimate forms of amusement and the masses being for various reasons unable to hunt foxes and shoot peasants have to fall back on recreations in which killing takes place only by accident there is the race course and the football field the masses are expected to consider themselves happy outside racing and football however the come day go day englishman has a good many facilities for recreation although in most communities the grandfatherly authorities have abolished the old feasts and fairs which provided periodic saturnalia of merry-go-rounds and wild beast shows it is a poor townlet which cannot nowadays boast its permanent settlement of coconut shies and shooting galleries where on saturday evenings the true-born englishman may find substantial joys then for the londoner in addition to this kind of thing there are from time to time provided vast orgies at hampstead heath the welsh harp barnet fair and other choice resorts here again it is a case of coconuts and shooting galleries swing boats steam roundabouts and aerial flights backed up with donkey rides a free use of the tickler and the ladies teaser unlimited confetti throwing and unlimited beer these amusements of course are on the face of them quite innocent and equally english and unintellectual failing merry-go-rounds and coconut shies the delights of which are apt to pall the english masses have still left to them their main redoubt of rational enjoyment which for reasons no man may skill is called the music hall the english music hall is practically an expansion or efflorescence of the old-fashioned sing-song sixty years ago the man who went out to take a stoop of ale at his inn was accustomed to be regaled with a little music free of charge mine host had possessed himself of a second-hand piano and secured the services of some broken-down musician to play it for him there was a great singing of old songs and the time sped merrily as it did in the golden age these feasts of harmony brought custom and in course of time the evening sing-songs at certain hostelries became organized institutions and were run on lines of great enterprise the piano being supplemented by an orchestra and the pianist by a number of professional singers and entertainers within the last fifty years the sing-song has been separated from its parent the alehouse and has developed into the music hall Today the English music halls are almost as thick on the ground as churches and chapels. In the metropolis you would have a difficulty to count them. In the provinces every town of size supports two or three halls and insists on London talent and London style. 
the class of entertainment provided may be costly and amusing but it is certainly not edifying the performers almost to a man and one might say to a woman are persons who can be considered artists only in the broadest sense and whose ignorance and vulgarity are as colossal as their salaries roughly the entertainment may be divided into two sections the one concerned with feats of strength juggling and the like and the other with laughter-making and vocalism as regards the first of these sections a man who can balance a horse and trap on the end of his chin appears to give great satisfaction to an english audience why this should be so nobody knows the good purpose that may be served by balancing a horse and trap on the end of one's chin is not obvious but the english masses are ravished by the spectacle they also have a great fondness for the stout lady who catches cannon-balls on the back of her neck for the other stout lady who risks her life nightly on the flying trapeze for the gentleman who walks about the stage with a piano under one arm and a live mule under the other and for the gentleman who rides the bicycle standing on his head to the mind of the english masses these are marvels and well worth the money they give a zest to life and they provide material for conversation and their attraction seems perennial the great standby of the halls however is the laughter-making and vocal department here shine the great stars whose names are familiar on english lips as household words here is pervade the culture the song and the humour of the english masses it is from the music-hall stage that the vast majority of englishmen take their tone and their sentiment that renowned comedian fred fetchem strolls on to the boards of the frivolity some night and assuming a fiendish grin exclaims idiotically that's air next morning and for many weeks thereafter all england says there's air on any and every occasion what ho she bumps now why shan't be long not half did he and similar catchwords all popular and all meaningless capture the english imagination in their turn and for a season at any rate englishmen can say nothing else it is the same with the music-hall song always there are current in england three or four songs of the hour which every englishman worth the name sings whistles or hums and always these songs from whatever point of view regarded are of the most blithering and bathotic nature at the present moment the prime and universal favorite is that pathetic ditty everybody's loved by someone for the benefit of the english i quote the first stanza and the chorus of this work a lady stood within a busy city her darling little daughter by her side she'd stopped to buy a bunch of pretty violets from a ragged little orphan she espied the words she spoke were kinder than the boy had heard for years and in reply to what she asked he murmured through his tears everybody's loved by someone everybody knows that's true some have father and mother dear sister and brother too all the time that i remember since i was a mite so small i seem to be the only one that nobody loves at all with this enchanting song the english welkin resounds by day and night the great broad-shouldered genial englishman full of four ale and bad whisky howls it in chorus at his favorite public work-girls sing it in factories mothers rock their children to sleep with it and every english urchin whistles or shouts it at you with unflagging zest 
of course there are others for example there is i'm a policeman which goes like this in the inky hour of midnight when the clock is striking three as i stroll along my beet route many curious things i see ragged urchins stagger past me to their mansions in the west millionaires through cold and hunger on our doorsteps sink to rest dirty dustmen in their broughams off to supper at the cry then bill sykes the burglar passes with an eyeglass in his eye such are the sights i witness when i am on my beat filling my heart with sawdust filling my boots with feet covering half the pavement up with my plates of meat though mother sent to say that i'm a policeman which uh, need one remark is intended for what the scots are supposed to call woot also there is he stopped pendleberry plum had a wart on his gum and he rubbed it with sandpaper hard the wart on his gum made plum fairly hum when it stuck out about half a yard the wart grew so quick when he rubbed it with a brick till it looked like a short billiard cue said plum to himself i shall die on the shelf for i'm darned if i know what to do so he went and got a pickaxe and shoved it underneath then he lifted up his jaw and he swallowed all his teeth and then he stopped the verses i have quoted are a good true and fair sample of the kind of thing that finds favour among the english masses i do not think that anything better is being proffered and it is pretty certain that anything less inane would be doomed to failure the fact is that the english mind in the lump is flat coarse and maggoty and the english understanding is as the understanding of a feeble and ill-bred child a couple of generations ago the songs popular among englishmen had some claim to coherence decency and common sense nowadays however the englishman admits that he cannot sing the old songs he has gone farther and fared worse and among the many symptoms of his decadence none is more pronounced than his easy toleration of the balderdash that is being served up to him by the alls chapter twenty stock exchange there is nothing in england more astounding or more tigerish than the city man englishmen have a fixed idea that they are the soul of generosity indifferent to money and not in the least sordid when they are put to it for a type of sheer greediness it pleases them to point a finger at the scot yet there can be no doubt that of late years the desire for riches has become the absorbing english passion the ostentation and vulgar displays of the aristocracy and the newly rich have stirred the middle-class english heart to envy how comes it that such and such a man sleeps on lilies and eats roses he has means my friend and what are means just money if you are going to be happy in this life if you insist upon a full paunch of the choicest upon the ease and softness which are so grateful to decadent persons if you would be in a position to possess all that the soul of the decadent person covets you really must have money and as you are a middle-class englishman whose people have omitted to leave you a million or so it is very awkward for you life is short the cup goes round but once you have five hundred pounds how is it to be made into fifty thousand pounds and that while the flush of youth still incarnadines your ambitious cheek there is only one way you must speculate 
judiciously if you can but you must speculate you are an englishman and a sportsman and sometimes you get your fifty thousand pounds then all the world marvels and would fain do likewise so that the ball is kept rolling it is a ball full of money and it rolls cityward the generous open-handed englishmen who are the city take as much as they want and toss you the balance the game is as fashionable as ping-pong everybody plays it and win or lose everybody calls it the stock exchange i am told that the stock exchange proper is a reputable institution and essential to the well-being of the country i do not doubt this for a moment but round it there has grown up a specious and parasitical finance which is rapidly transforming the english into a nation of punters fortunes made while you wait is the lure to which the latter-day englishman has been found infallibly to respond the remnant of the common sense possessed by his excellent grandparents arouses in him a sneaking suspicion that the golden promises of the outside broker and the bucket shopkeeper are not to be depended upon yet he reads in his morning paper that no end of stocks and shares have risen a point or dropped a point as the case may be and he knows that if he had been in on the right side he would have made more money in a few hours than his excellent grandparents would have made in the course of a whole grubby lifetime hence sooner or later his patrimony or few hundred of surplus capital is planked into the ball that rolls citywards on the off chance that it may come back arm in arm as it were with thousands even the more cautious sort of englishman who looks upon speculation with a deprecating eye and pins his faith on legitimate investment is rapidly descending into the gambling habit schemes which promise fat dividends inflame his imagination and drag him out of the even tenor of his way he is perfectly well aware that fifteen twenty and twenty-five per cent in return for one's money is quite wrong somehow but on the other hand the prospect ravishes and there are concerns in the world which pay such dividends year by year without turning a hair only sometimes there is a colossal smash and half the shopkeepers of england put on sackcloth and ashes and get up funds for one another's relief to the looker-on the whole system is highly diverting to the players in the game the fun will never be obvious the real truth about the matter is simply this the standard of living in england is an inflated and artificial standard practically every englishman lives or longs to live beyond his means the workman and the workman's wife must put on the style of the foreman and the foreman's wife and the foreman and the foreman's wife must appear to be nearly as comfortably off as the manager the manager as his employer all employers shopkeepers factory owners ironmasters engineers printers and even publishers as prosperous as each other and so on till you come to dukes than whom of course nobody can be more prosperous it would be possible to bring together six englishmen whose incomes ranged from one pound ten shilling a week to fifty pounds a year and whose dress and taste would be pretty well identical fifty years ago the sons of the middle classes had really no inclination toward the superfluities the dandy was rather laughed at among them the gourmet was a monster they never by any chance encountered and the libertine was a sad warning and a person to be eschewed nowadays it is all the other way 
the gilt and tinsel and glamour and rapidity of the gay world have captured the english understanding and brought it exceedingly low there is little moral backbone left in the country money 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 to be ill-gotten and ill-spent is the english ideal the man who can go without is considered a crank or a fool or worse or he is set down for an indolent fellow who should be given a month or two on the treadmill for luck the whole duty of man of englishmen that is to say is to have money in ponderable quantities the man without it is of no account at all nobody believes in him nobody wants him nobody tolerates him he may be wise and witty and chaste and blessed with all the virtues and still be received with great coldness by bank managers and it is well known that the attitude of a bank manager towards a man is the attitude of society at large if the bank manager beams and rubs his hand god's in his heaven all's right with the world if the bank manager frowns and sends you impertinent letters you may last a week or a fortnight or a few months but you are on thin ice and you must please take care not to forget it i should not be at all surprised if the omnipotent official whose business it is to discover what persons are or are not qualified to approach our british fountain of honour were one day found to be a bank manager in disguise so that on the whole the englishman has every inducement to get rich and to be very quick about it his dealings with the stock exchange that is to say with the city are but the natural expression of his anxiety to oblige all parties concerned it is a pity that getting and spending should become the main concerns of his life but as he pathetically puts it one must do as rome does and some women are never content the stock exchange is the only way chapter twenty one the beloved what is more beautiful or meet to be taken to the bosom than the englishman everybody loves him his goings to and fro upon the earth are as the progresses of one who has done all men good he drops fatness and blessings as he walks he smiles benignity and graciousness and i am glad to see you all looking so well and before him runs one in plush crying who is the most popular man of this footstool and all the people shall rejoice and say the englishman god bless him hence it comes to pass that in whatever part of the world the englishman may find himself he has a feeling that he is thoroughly at home i am as welcome as flowers in may he says those poor foreigners those poor heathen are glad to see me they never have any money poor devils and were it not for our whirring spindles at home i verily believe they would have nothing to wear in brief the englishman abroad is always in a sort of father christmassy santa claus frame of mind he eats well he drinks well and he sleeps well he calls for the best and he pays for it it is a wonderful thing to do and it goes straight to the hearts of the poor foreigner and the poor heathen this at any rate is the englishman's own view it is a pleasing consoling and stimulating view and it would ill become an unregenerate outsider rudely to disturb it indeed i question whether the englishman in his blindness and adipose conceit would allow you to disturb it when persons in france say a bas l'anglais your fat englishman smiles and says little boys 
when people put rude pictures of him on german postcards he smiles again and says that the flowing tide of public opinion in germany is entirely with him when dutch farmers propose to throw him into the sea he becomes very red in the neck splutters somewhat and says i'm sure they will make excellent subjects in time and when the savage americans desire to chaw him up and swallow him he says you astonish me i have always been under the impression that blood was thicker than water his desire is to live at peace with all men but his notion of peace is to have his hand in both your pockets and no questions asked he owns two-thirds of the habitable globe vide the geography books and every pint of sea is his pace the popular song he owns also everything that is worth owning he is the pierpont morgan of the universe who could help loving him on the other hand the excellent j b has not escaped calumny if i were disposed to reproduce some of the slanders upon him it goes without saying that they would make a rather large chapter all manner of foreign writers have time and time again had a fling at the englishman they love him but their love is not blind they perceive that he has faults of a grievous nature and they write accordingly curiously enough too quite severe criticisms of john bull have been written in his own household mr wilfred scowen blunt for example who is an englishman and apparently innocent of celtic taint actually goes so far as to call the englishman an anglo-norman dog down to the latest born the hungriest of the pack the master wolf of all men called the sassenach the anglo-norman dog who goeth by land and sea as his forefathers went in chartered piracy death fire in his right hand and the english poet goes on to elaborate his indictment against the englishman thus he hath outlived the day of the old single graspings where each went his way alone to plunder all he hath learned to curb his lust somewhat to smooth his brawls to guide his passionate gusts his cry of mine 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 in inarticulate wrath he dareth not make raid on goods his next friend hath with open violence nor lose his hand to steal save in community and for the common weal twixt saxon man and man he is more congruous grown holding a subtler plan to make the world his own by organized self-seeking in the paths of power he is new drill to wait he knoweth his appointed hour and his appointed prey of all he maketh tool even of his own sad virtues to cajole and rule we are told further that the beloved has tarred time's features pockmarked nature's face and brought all to the same jakes whatever that may mean also there is no sentient thing polluteth and defileth as this saxon king this intellectual lord and sage of the new quest the only wanton he that fouleth his own nest and still his boast goeth forth this is an english opinion and consequently worth the money mr blunt assures us that in putting it forth he has the approval of no less a philosopher than mr herbert spencer and no less an idealist than mr george frederick watts i have not says mr blunt shrunk from insisting on the truth that the hypocrisy and all-acquiring greed of modern england is an atrocious spectacle 
one which if there be any justice in heaven must bring a curse from god as it has surely already made the angels weep the destruction of beauty in the name of science the destruction of happiness in the name of progress the destruction of reverence in the name of religion these are the pharisaic crimes of all the white races but there is something in the anglo-saxon impiety crueler still that it also destroys as no other race does for its mere vainglorious pleasure the anglo-saxon alone has in our day exterminated root and branch whole tribes of mankind he alone has depopulated continents species after species of their wonderful animal life and is still yearly destroying and this not merely to occupy the land for it lies in large part empty but for his insatiable lust of violent adventure to make record bags and kill when the beloved comes across reading of this sort he no doubt sheds bitter tears and remembers how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child and he goes on his way rejoicing unimpressed and unreformed the fact of the matter is that from the beginning john bull though possessed of a great reputation for honesty and munificence has never really been any better than he should be when he interfered between tyrant and slave when he went forth to conquer savage persons and to annex savage lands which somehow invariably flowed with milk and honey he made a point of doing it with the air of a philanthropist and for centuries the world took him at his own estimate even in the late war the great cry was that he did not want gold mines as a general rule he never wants anything but he always gets it it is only of late that the world has begun to find him out and that he himself has begun to have qualms he feels in his bones that something has gone wrong with him it may be a slight matter and not beyond repair but there it is he cannot put his hand on his heart and say i am the fine substantial sturdy truth-speaking incorruptible magnanimous genial englishman of half a century ago the fly has crept into the ointment of his virtue and the fragrance of it no longer remains his attitude at the present moment is the attitude of the anxious man who perceives that life is a little too much for him and keeps on saying we shall have to buck up he is in two minds about most things over which he was once cocksure he could not quite tell you for example whether he continues to stand at the head of the world's commerce or not once there was no doubt about it now well it is a question of statistics and you can prove anything by statistics out of america men have come to buy english things which were deemed unpurchasable the american has come and seen and purchased and done it quite quickly the englishman is a little puzzled his slow wits cannot altogether grasp the situation we must buck up he says and take measures while there is still time he does not see that the new order is upon him and that inevitably and for his good he must be considerably shaken up his own day has been a lengthy a roseful and a gaudy one it has been a day of ease and triumph and comfortable going and the beloved has become very wealthy and a trifle stout in consequence whether to-morrow is going to be his day too and whether it is going to be one of those nice loafing sunshiny kind of days that the beloved likes are open questions it is to be hoped devoutly that fate will be kind to him he needs the sympathy of all who are about him he wants encouragement and support and a restful time 
it is said that his majesty of portugal who has just left these shores on being asked what had impressed him most during his visit replied the roast beef nothing else sir inquired his interlocutor yes said the monarch the boiled beef and there is a great deal in it through much devouring of beef the english have undoubtedly waxed a trifle beefy it is their beefiness and suetness that fatty degeneration in fact which impresses you recognizing his need of props and stays and abdominal belts as it were the beloved has latterly taken to remembering the colonies he is now of opinion that he and his sturdy children overseas should be knit together in bonds of closer unity to present an unbroken front to the world should share the burdens and glories of empire and so on and so forth the colonies good bodies saw it all at once they had been accustomed to be snubbed and neglected and left out of count and they had forgotten to whom they belonged in his hour of need the beloved cried help i said i didn't want you but i do i do and the colonies went to his aid at a dollar a day per head the prettiest lot of freebooters and undesirable characters they found themselves able to muster later they sent several landau loads of premiers and politicians who were fed and flattered to their hearts content and went home no doubt greatly impressed with the english roast and boiled beef these gentlemen made speeches in return for their dinners they were allowed to visit the colonial office and kiss the hand of mr chamberlain they saw peter robinson's and the tuppany tube and the bonds of empire have been knit closer ever since not to put too fine a point upon it the englishman's attempt to buttress himself up out of the colonies has proved a ghastly failure the scheme fell flat the english may want the colonies but the colonies do not want the english at any rate on bonds of unity lines the banner of imperialism which has waved so gloriously during the past lustrum will have to be furled and put away the great imperial idea declines to work it has been brought on the political stage half a century too late at best it was a fetch and it has failed the all-beloved will have to find some other way out whether he is quite equal to the task may be reckoned another question one supposes that he will try for there is life in the old dog yet at any rate according to the old dog end of chapter twenty one End of The Egregious English by T. W. H. Crossland